right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, writers, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. There are perhaps a handful of performers who, through talent and circumstance, transcend the expected limits of their medium. Both of my guests today have done just that. Michael Douglas has played some of the most iconic roles in film over the past 30 years. He's challenged the way we think about power and sex, family, and relationships. I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities? I'm pregnant. I'm going to have our child. Alex, that's your choice, honey. That has nothing to do with me. And as Douglas has reigned as one of the kings of the movie screen over the past 30 years, my first guest is considered one of the kings of the smaller screen. From New York, the greatest city in the world, it's The Late Show with David Letterman. When David Letterman started late night in 1982, the New York Times said he was, quote, more of an acquired taste than most comedians, unquote. Uh, now it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for a segment of this program that we like to call Stupid Petrix. We grew up on Johnny a true gentleman who could deliver a smooth setup and punchline, occasionally helped by a wink. But suddenly, with Late Night, the ultimate punchline was the fact that some gap-toothed, unknown smartass even had a show. His pet tricks were stupid on purpose, and so was he. Tune in and you might catch him lowering himself into a water tank wearing a suit made from 3,400 Alka-Seltzer tablets. And I, we have the oxygen here, and I have been asked about 12 times by various members of the staff to remind you, don't try this at home. I 
have the 900-gallon tank. I know you have the oxygen. I know you have the suit of Oxyselser and a staff of 100 people. Today, David Letterman is an institution. His show has changed American comedy, and after 30 years, he's changed as well. I do a lot less work than I used to do. Right. Uh, I just got to a point where I have no patience for meetings, so I don't go to any meetings. I can't make decisions anymore. I don't like making decisions. You know, we have a dozen producers. They can have the meetings, and they can make the decisions, and I'll just come down, and somebody tell me what to do, and, and we go. And uh, But it was different before. Yeah, I, I used to uh, be involved in everything big and large. I don't think that was necessarily good, but at the time I thought it was what was required when you had your own show. You had to had to have everything, you know, in your view and certainly influence e each little choice. The guests that are on the show, do you still help select the guests or someone uh, else takes the other yeah, time? Yeah, people who select them. Occasionally I will think of, oh, I heard about somebody that did so-and-so. Could we look into that and this and that? Very little, very little. I mean, these, Other people do that. We have uh, have the, the good luck of these people having been together for a long, 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 long time. They all know what the expectation is. Of course, when you're in that situation, the, the bad version of it is, Oh, God, it's the same thing. It's the assembly line. We're just building the same car over and over and over again. Do you feel that way sometimes? Yeah, sometimes. I'm the biggest offender of that. I'm 65. I don't have the energy I had when I was 35. There are certain things I like about the show now that uh, I like more than before. Such as? Uh, I like talking to people and uh, the opportunity to learn something. Or if I have a, a natural curiosity about somebody, I really look forward to that. If I have something that I know is going to be silly and stupid, and I want my authorship out there on this right. something silly and stupid, then I'm, I get eager about that. But in the old days, we just were going uh, 20 hours a day. We'd be out on the streets. We'd be going to New Jersey. We'd be up all yeah. night shooting, and uh, there would be contests, and I can't do that show anymore. Right. The more successful the show has become and the more successful you have become, do you find that in terms of programming the show, you have to rely more on stars? Is yeah. there a kind of person yeah. you, it's, you— It's completely different. In the beginning, when we, we started the, uh, the late-night show at uh, NBC— we had a liaison between Johnny Carson and ourselves named Dave Tebbett. He had worked at NBC and then had become close with Johnny, and so Johnny hired him. And he was a guy who, honest to God, talked like <laughs> this. Dave came in to make sure there were no conflicts between our show and The Tonight Show. He says, for example, uh, let's just say that Bob Hope is arrested for using drugs. And we just all just, <laughs> just like, Really? In what universe is that a likelihood? Right, right, right. And he says, you can't then do jokes about Bob Hope. And we said, okay, all right, we'll get that. We were, were not allowed to use do a monologue, and we were not allowed to have an orchestra. And we also felt that a way to distinguish ourselves, since Johnny had the big stars that people really wanted, we would then kind of have— Fringe uh, people. That's exactly right. And so we, we sort of mined that vein as much as we could. It was sort of a, a fortunate coincidence that we were prohibited in that, that sense because we weren't really interested in having mainstream people on, too. You started in radio? Yeah. My first job was at a radio station. You at, went to college? Uh, you went to Ball State University. I studied uh, radio and TV. Why did you study radio and TV? Uh, academically, um, you know, I went to Ball State. No language requirement. <laughs> And no math requirement. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> it really saved me because I was academically I was not very good. Early on, I was very lucky that I knew how to save myself. 
sophomore year in high school, and I had signed up for a public speaking course. And the first day, you were supposed to get up and extemporaneously speak for five minutes. You know, everybody's twitchy and sweaty and worried about this, as was I. And then I got up there, the nervousness and the twitchiness and everything dissipated. I loved it, and I thought, oh, my God, maybe this is a way I can distinguish myself. And I did, you know. But had you been the entertainer as a child in no. your household? Oh, in the household, yeah, right. sure, to what extent. And my parents wouldn't put up with it much. <laughs> there was a fine line between being, oh, isn't he amusing, and, and being just a and wise— being erotic, yeah, yeah. And being a wise-ass, and we don't like that. I can remember uh, my, my father was big and loud and noisy and, and always had stuff going on, and my mother, completely non-demonstrative. And I can remember every Sunday night after dinner, my dad would make popcorn, and we would sit in front of the TV and watch Ed Sullivan. And Ed used to have this habit of, well, come on now, let's really hear it for him. And my mom used to say, I don't like the way Ed begs the audience for applause. She was a connoisseur of television hosts. <laughs> and then, ergo, no, incredible. No, she was not a connoisseur. She resented the fact that somebody had to be encouraged right. to support what yeah. they had just that, said. That Sullivan was whoring himself on That's Network exactly television. right. That's exactly right. The great right. Ed Sullivan. Yeah. So you go to Ball State and you get this degree. What do you do after that? Well, through a friend of mine at a, uh, the ABC affiliate in Indianapolis, where I lived, which was uh, 60 miles away from where I went to school, and still is just about 60 miles, I heard that they were auditioning for, a, they wanted a summer announcer. So I went down there and auditioned, never having been in a television studio in my life, and got the job. I mean, it was a fixed fight because I had no business getting the job. I wasn't very good. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience. And they gave me the job. And suddenly, the bulb that was turned on my sophomore year in high school now is is burning white hot right. because it's, are you kidding me? I'm 19 and I'm going to be on TV. I mean, it's preposterous. And what kind of job did you have? I was uh, the booth announcer. You, so I can't believe you said that. Back when they had booth announcers on yeah, television. Yeah, that's right. That's what I did. These guys defined my childhood, by the way. These were the guys. Uh, the principal uh, responsibility was to keep the program log. There used to be a lot of technical glitches in television mm -hmm. back then. Yeah. You had booth announcers who would pick up the slack when something went wrong that's with, right. with tape to tape. That's exactly right. A station break was a huge process because you had a control room, you had a director, you had uh, two or three 16-millimeter projectors, you had a slide chain, and you had the big two-and-a-half-inch Ampex tape. Let's say you had four commercials in a uh, station break. Then you'd have to roll the tape. Then you'd have to count down and roll the film. Then you'd have to go live to the, to the booth to read copy over a slide okay. and then back to the film. And it was a, an enormous thing. Summer job in, in 1960, 68, I was making 150 bucks a week. I got to be the weekend weatherman. I'd never done that before. I got to read the news on the, on the morning kitty show. None of this would happen today. So I go back to school now to my radio and TV studies, and all of a sudden it's, hey, there's Duck Lips. We've seen him on TV. <laughs> and oh, my God, what a progression that was for me. Now, that was what year? Uh, I think I started there in 68, and I, I stayed there. So the there. war is going on. Yeah, and you right. get, And you avoid draft, and you avoid all that. Uh, in those days, you get the student deferment. Right. And Ball State was principally a teacher's college in those days. And so uh, it they was, wanted teachers. It was chock full of guys who wanted that student deferment and also the teaching deferment. Right. I was not studying teaching. So the minute I graduated, I was reclassified 1A. Went for my pre-draft physical in April. They said, okay, we'll call you. And then in the meantime, before I was called, Nixon announced the uh, national lottery. They were going to end the draft. They were trying to step down the, the Vietnamese war. 
my birthday was 342 or something like that out of 356. So that meant even though I was 1A and had my pre-induction physical and was ready to go, it was over for me. At the time, I didn't know how lucky I was. I felt guilty because I had friends who had gone, and I had friends who had been in the Marine Corps, and I just felt like, these guys went, why shouldn't I go? And then it dawned on me pretty quickly I had been among the really, really lucky. Of course. Yeah. yeah. What was the political landscape like at Ball State when you went there? Well, it was just starting to uh, – I, I used to make jokes that they'd have student protests, but it was to get the cafeteria cooks to wear hairnets. Uh, <laughs> it was not a hotbed. It was not Madison, Wisconsin. It was Muncie, Indiana. But it was starting, and there were uh, sit-ins and demonstrations, and you know, Bobby Kennedy had spoken on campus. So it was starting. You mentioned booth announcers, and I remember I did a YouTube search – I wanted to find this guy that was literally the voice of my childhood, W-O-R, and he'd come on and say, you know, uh, next on Million Dollar Movie, Barbara Stanwyck tells Gary Cooper where he can go in Ball of Fire. <laughs> and he just had this voice that was just, it just haunted yeah. me. Well, that, that's interesting. You mentioned that guy. I had the, the little kid voice from Indiana. I wasn't that guy, but I still had to do the job. And I can't impress upon you enough how tedious it is to sit there for eight hours watching, programming, and logging everything that happens. If you lose audio, you have to log that. If you lose video, you have to log that. You have to log sign-on, sign-off, every commercial, every station break. And at first, I was scared silly, but then, like everything else, you get accustomed to it and you become blasé, and so I would just start wandering the building. You know, it was so embarrassing. They would, will the booth announcer please report to the announced booth? And I, oh, my God, I've missed the, the so-and-so. The main announcer was a, a guy named Rob Stone, tremendous voice and a, a hopeless alcoholic. I mean, a real alcoholic. They uh, go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, kind of. Certainly in those days, it was not uncommon. He would come in and he would bring a pint with him. And so in the spirit of this, we who were working the sign-off shift, we would always send somebody out for beer. Oh, my, was this fun. In those days, you would do a five-minute news summary before sign-off, nightcap news. And then you would do the, uh, the broadcast statement. You'd read that over the slide of the station. And then they would go to the national anthem with the waving flag. <laughs> One night, a guy in the props department said, I can reconstruct exactly the station is, as pictured on the slide. We can make it blow up. So as you're, as you're reading the uh, thank you and good night and, and uh, why not tune in WLW overnight and blah, blah, this and so until tomorrow, good night and good luck, I have the thing blow Kaboom. up. Yeah. Oh, God, we were proud of ourselves. You know, we really thought we had done something. Jeez, nobody ever said anything. No. It was bizarre. Nobody got fired. Nobody asked a question about it. Nobody said but, anything. But, but what's interesting is from school and then doing the job and so forth and the booth thing, the comedy gland is secreting through yes. the entire yeah. time. Yeah. What are you doing for that? Meaning other than blowing up the studio and the, and the sign-off, uh, are would, you writing? Or are you? Yes, I, I was looking for any outlet, and it came for me doing the weather. I knew nothing about weather, and you'd go downstairs, and they'd have the AP machine, and the map would come over, the national map, and you would go to the big magnetic board in the studio, and you put the low system, and you put the high system, and you put the occluded front, and you put the rain showers. And so it told you everything. Any time at all that I could monkey with that, I was very happy. I can remember two episodes. One, I was uh, – had forecast sunny and dry, and we we go off the air and blah blah. And I go outside. This this is a horrible thunder shower. The rain is coming down in sheets, and I, I was just twenty feet away, just oblivious of this this uh, dangerous monsoon. Yes, coming through this one of these violent midwestern summer thunderstorms coming through, <laughs> attacking the station. I got to be well known because this Sunday night show 
was on after the ABC Sunday Night Movie. That was big programming. Big show. Yeah. We got a bunch of complaints. And this was when people were wearing bell-bottom pants. I don't think you could buy regular pants. Got a lot of calls about he's either not wearing underpants or he needs to wear underpants. That's how I distinguish myself. Do you want to clear that up now? Were you wearing underpants? Well, of course you, I was wearing, wearing underpants. underpants. It was Indianapolis. I, yeah. we, we're not yeah. taught Good to God. go out without our underpants. We're Americans. I, it's, whatever problem was perceived was not mine, I right. assure you. Right. And then where do you go from there? Uh, in terms of underpants? And for, well, if you wish. <laughs> I got tired of uh, sitting in the booth and tired of working weekends. And also, they didn't, uh, they didn't want me there. They would keep bringing in auditions for my job. <laughs> That really hurt my feelings, but I couldn't argue with them because I didn't know what I was doing. But the cumulative effect of being on TV a, a lot there, we got this memo once from the research department, and of all of the people, the, the anchor team and whomever else, I had the highest uh, Q rating of anybody there. And it was only by accident, really. So I started looking for a job. Some people I knew were coming in to start up a, a talk radio station. So I went to work at the new talk radio station. What was the I, format? It was News Talk Sports, WNTS. When I resigned to quit, give my notice to the uh, general manager, the guy said, and it chilled me at the time, he said, really, you're leaving this TV station to go work for a brand new radio station? And I said, yeah. And he said, you will never be heard of again. So I went to the station, worked there for a year, realized that I had to make a move. Nobody would, would listen. It was a daytime station. This was tremendous. They had a daytime license, which meant... The radio station came on when the sun came up and went off when the sun went down. Literally. Yeah. And in the winter, we were off at 345 in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and I, I had the midday shift. And I'd come in at noon, and two hours later, I'd be going home. It was it was Enjoy great. your afternoon. Yes. Yeah. signing off. <laughs> and then in the summer, conversely, you were on yeah. to like 930 or 10. It was uh, uh, awful. It was uh, Watergate, and, and people assumed, well, the guy's got a talk show on the radio. I bet he knows everything there is to know about Watergate, and I knew nothing. I'd have to read endless pages of wire copy. I remember reading a, a story about Gordon Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, and his name kept coming up, a special counsel, so-and-so, Gordon Strachan, advisor of the White House, Gordon Strachan. Finally, the phones light up, and I said, thank God. And I said, yes. He says, uh, it's not Strachan, it's Strawn. You're mispronouncing the guy's <laughs> name. I said, okay, thanks. Do you have a <laughs> question? No. Click buzz. So there you go. Were you ambitious during this time? Did you have an ambition? Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I really thought. Um, I really thought I could write half hours situation comedies. I thought I could. What do did it. you watch? Well, in my childhood, it was completely different. It would have been stuff like Saturday morning nonsense. Then, as I grew older, you'd get uh, Mayberry, uh, the Andy, Andy Griffith show, Ozzy and Harriet Nelson, the Nelsons, and that kind of stuff. And then later on, in, in those days, it was all the Mary Tyler Moore things, the Bob Newhart show and the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I really thought, oh, I can write uh, one of those Mary Tyler Moore shows. And it turned out I couldn't. As you know, there's a template for writing those things. They use the template because it's successful. And if you don't know the template and you think you can make a better version of it, it's a, a, a very foreign object to them. To you, you think, look, I've improved on the template, but they don't want that. They, want they, that. they want something They're to like work. They're like Detroit. Yes, that's right. I mean, we're talking about Mary Tyler Moore. That's pretty good stuff. Sure. Smart. And you're in L.A. at that time? No, still in Indianapolis, and I would be sending scripts and looking for an agent. Finally, a guy said, yeah, if you come to Los Angeles, he said, I'll be your agent. So with that encouragement, I, I just left. And I don't know about you, but, you know, your friends say, okay, here, you can meet with so-and-so, and, and you can meet uh, Mel Blank's son, you can meet with him, and, <laughs> and I know this one, and I know that right. one. And so you go out there with high hopes. I guess it's like the pioneers in the Conestoga wagon, and they run out of beans. 
So within the first week, you run through all of your appointments, and then you got nothing. Yeah, then you're Shanghai. That's right. You're, that's just, right. you're just on the shoals <laughs> yeah, there that's right. in L.A. I remember when I went to L.A., I did a soap opera at 30 Rock. The show was about to go off the air, and I'll never forget this guy that was the producer. You know, we're in the hallway, and they asked me to extend my contract for a few months. And he says that line to me. He says, what do you think you're going to do, go out to Hollywood, become a star in the movies? <laughs> I'm walking down the hallway. He's going, you listen to me. Come back here, you. You don't walk away from me. And I walk away from the guy, and I go to L.A. Now, were you ever haunted by that? <laughs> did, did you, honestly, did, did you, because in my case, Every I thought night. the guy was, I said, oh, yeah, well, of course I haven't do. considered that. Well, of course you do. Yeah. Who, who, who? You've been an enormously successful man. Did you ever dream you would be as no. successful as you are? No. Never. No. I, and, I, and I'll tell you, the, the same for you, same for most people in this, uh, in show business. You're just lucky enough to get to do exactly what you want to do all your life. So that's the success. Coming up, David Letterman's own personal Cinderella story. I drove in a pickup truck with my wife to L.A., and three years later, I'm sitting next to Johnny Carson. That's not supposed to happen. You know, it's just not supposed to happen, but it did. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
While other comedians struggled to find their way in Hollywood, David Letterman clearly saw the path in front of him. For me, the, the roadmap uh, to pursue was handed to you uh, via Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show. They would have comics on. It would be David Brenner. And uh, they would say, oh, and they'll be appearing at the comedy store. And it seemed to be that the connection between the comedy store and The Tonight Show w- was pretty close. Yeah. So even though he I— He mined that facility, that particular facility. Yeah. It was uh, the uh, the farm system for the comedy store. And great guys were coming out and getting on and Steve Landisberg and uh, on and on. I say on and on because I can't remember the name, so I just... <laughs> it works. Uh, yeah. Even though I wanted to be a writer because I didn't have the courage to tell my family and friends that what I really want to do is, you know, somehow get famous and be on TV. So when I, when I went out there, the, the first Monday I was in uh, California when I moved in 75, I uh, wrote down some stuff and went to the comedy store and got on stage. How'd it go? It was, it was awful. I'd never been in a darkened room with a spotlight, and it was just like a train coming at me. Right. So I did my little five minutes from rote left, and then uh, the owner of the place, oh, you should come back and do some more. <laughs> so I thought, are you kidding me? And she said, no, you can MC. So I came back, and I was the MC. You're fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Derek. <laughs> Great. So, so that was 1975. Three years later, I was on The Tonight Show. That worked so much better than it should have. I think it must be harder now to and get— And was it three years of just work in that room and working the mic and working stand-up? Yeah, yeah. but it was—I mean, it was fun because every night you go there and you were hanging around guys, Jay Leno and, and Robin Williams and George Miller and Tom Dreesen and anybody now who you're aware of— you would see every night. And it was great fun. I mean, my God, it was great fun. It didn't make any difference what you did during the day. You knew that when it got dark, you'd be on Sunset Boulevard. The place would be packed. So you say, yeah, night after night, but still in all, how could that not be fun? So did Carson find you there? Well, they had a guy. You know, they had a team of guys when I was there that would come in. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I got on this Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, to write. To write and perform. And oh, that was it was me and Michael Keaton, Jim Hampton, and Dick Sean, and Susie Kurtz, and uh, Julie Kahn. Judy Kahn. Judy Kahn. Thank you very right. much. So uh, from that show, uh, they said, oh, well, we'll put uh, you on because you're on that show. You can come out and do stand-up, and then you go sit down and talk to Johnny. And without that, you never know what the formula is. You could be on nine times and never get to sit down with Johnny. Right. You could be on for six years and never, or you could be bumped 40 times and never. But because of this, oh, and he's appearing on the so-and-so show, the Mary Tyler Moore show, I got to sit down with Johnny. And, and that was, again, that was craziness. That was that was another one of feel? those. Well, you know what it is. Because you idolized him. It's, oh, yeah. It's such a jolt. The material is so committed. You don't have to think about anything. You just have to start talking and it all comes out. The adrenaline takes days to burn out of you. Holy God, you're sitting next to Johnny Carson. I mean, you just can't believe it. I mean, to me, and I think most guys my age who were out there doing that, one, the fact that it worked. You know, really, I I drove in a pickup truck with my wife to L.A., and three years later, I'm sitting next to Johnny Carson. That's not supposed to happen. You know, it's just not supposed to happen, but it did. Now, do you think that Carson was someone who, do you think he saw himself in you? Do you think he saw the Midwestern? Boy, I don't know. Gene and you. I don't know. I mean, it was so easy for other people to make that comparison, uh, and that seemed to be the formula. But I don't. I don't know if he felt that way or not. Um, I, I don't. I can't answer that. And then what happened after that? 
Well, your life changed immediately. Suddenly, you weren't just a guy who was at the comedy store. You were the guy that had been on with Carson. And then I I was on, I think, two or three more times, and then I started hosting the show. And again, that was another, you know, you just feel like... It's like it's like winning the World Series your rookie season. What's the you gap of time between when you first sat down with him when you started hosting? Uh, the first time I was on was uh, November of '78, and I think I hosted. Uh, it was Monday night opposite the Academy Awards. So it was the Good spring, spot. right? Yeah, in right, April. Right. So it been April, yeah. March, April. Yeah, Johnny had other things yeah. to do. <laughs> he was having a big Oscar party. Yeah, uh, turn the lights out, kid. And it was. Uh, I was just frozen. I was just frozen. I can remember Peter LaSalle coming up to me during the commercial break, and he said, you've got to loosen up. You've got to loosen up. <laughs> that I helps, said, too, I said, Thanks. Yeah, They get that in a manual. Thanks for that tip. Yeah, page 49. I remember the, the first night I was on The Tonight Show, and I'm, I'm telling you, for guys at the comedy store, this was it. Fighting and competition and backstabbing and bad-mouthing to get to The Tonight Show. If, if you don't do well, you'll never be heard of again. There's, there's no such thing as a guy bombing his first time on The Tonight Show and then having a delightful career. That just doesn't happen. Mm. You're gone. So there's a lot of pressure. So I, I'm getting ready to go out there just behind the curtain. And my manager at the time, Buddy Mora, who was with Jack Rollins and uh, Joffrey. Charles Joffe, right. they handled Robin Williams and, and Woody Allen and Dick Cabot and some other guys. So that was a big deal for me to be with these people. And, and Buddy and I, nice enough guy, but we never never saw eye to eye on much. And, and I think a lot of it was my immaturity about show business or just ignorance, not immaturity. I, you know, I had no time to be immature. I was just ignorant. So we're standing there and Johnny's saying, our next guest is a young blah, 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 blah. And Buddy says to me, and, he, and Buddy always whispered. Everything was a whisper with Buddy. He says, uh, Robin got Popeye. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> His final words to me as I'm going on The Tonight Show for yeah. the first time, telling me about a booking for one of his other clients. Right. You know, and I just never got over that. You know, you're a lot mellower now than you were, obviously, yes, right? absolutely. And you'd say that when you did the show, no matter how crazy or how wired you and the whole experience was of the early show, and you said running around and doing all the mm-hmm. taping and all the other bits and so forth and contests and everything— but, I mean, just your own nature seems like there was a kind of a, an edge to it that, you, that you've lost, but you seem like you've really just become, like, so much more, uh, what's the word, charming. Well, I don't know about charming, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and the fact that it's noticeable by others is, is uh, an indication that maybe I'm on the right track, because <laughs> to, to the exclusion of every other thing in my life, it was the success of this show. As a result, I waited to have a child... 20 years too long, I just didn't do anything else. It was right. the show. And it had to be the show. And if it wasn't the show, then find out a way to make it the show. And did you come from that world like Lorne, for example, says to me, he's an, he, he lives a life where his credo is work is play. Mm-hmm. Like we have such interesting jobs. You know, you don't stop working. Just well, that's, work, 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 that's work. part of it. And uh, that is one of the great residuals of, of, you know, you're around all these funny people and you have silly ideas and you have silly conversations. You laugh yourself sick. But for me, it was like, oh my God, if I fail at this, it's all going away. You know, if you fail at this, you got to get at the end of the line, and the line keeps getting longer. So to the exclusion of other important things, other aspects of life, 
I pursued the show. Then that changed, finally changed. Did you want it to change? No, at the, at the time, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know there was another way to live your life. I thought you, you had to keep banging your head and banging your head and banging your head. And I kept saying to myself, this is what they say. It's like pushing a rock uphill. It's like pushing a rock uphill. And one day, everything will change. Everything will be great. You'll succeed and everything will. Well, it never, it never quite worked that way for me. I think, uh, uh, well, not too difficult to assume that this is one of the reasons I had the quintuple bypass surgery. And then my doctor, he said, you know, he says, you don't have to be this way. Flogging yourself. Yeah. He said, you can... Delegate. Yeah. Or you, you can, he says, there are, uh, they've made pharmaceutical advancements here. You can help yourself. And I said, no, 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 I can't because that would ruin this and that would ruin that. And, uh, and then uh, Regina got, uh, we were able to get pregnant. I went into this uh, stark raving anxious depression. When she got pregnant? Yeah. Why? Uh, well, I was fine with it. I thought, if not now, when? You know, and she had wanted to have kids, like I said, 15, 20 years earlier. And so I, uh, this is a very complicated, uh, uninteresting story. No, it's, it's okay. Well, we and it has, it has to do with having shingles and being on exotic pain medication for the shingles and getting <laughs> fed up with the exotic pain medication <laughs> and saying to the pain doctor, I'm done. I'm not taking it anymore. And he said, well, you know, a lot of those things you can't just – I said, forget it. Click. And I stopped taking these things. And within a couple of days, I just turned into this twitching unicell yeah. – Altered states. Yeah. Yeah, it was very odd. Uh, and the guy said, well, you, you're in an anxious depression. And Lou said, you know, there are things we can do here <laughs> to help you out. Right. And I said, I'll try anything because I can't go on like this. Right. And so it was a small dose of an SSRI. Suddenly I realized I can have myself, my personality, the person that I've known, and then lose what was detracting, what was hurting, what was actually an impediment. Groom out the things that you wanted to groom out. Yeah. And when I came to the show business and I was in Los Angeles in the beginning, I was like Gomer Pyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, I swear to God, I, I came to work and they well, said— I, Really, I, I have trouble that you were no, Gomer. I really, no, but really? I, no, I don't mean in terms of, of, of lacking any sophistication, but I'll never forget the first job I got. I go to an, an audition. I'd done the, the soap in New York, and they paid you, you know, a very small amount of money, and I thought I was Rockefeller. They paid you 450 bucks a day. I was, I was the richest member of my family. My dad was a school teacher with six kids. He didn't make any money. And I go out to L.A., and I, I'll never forget, but I go to uh, the old Lorimar, which is now Sony, and I go to the gate at Lorimar. I say, Alec Baldwin, he's like, you know, uh, here's your map. You're parking in building 67, ninth floor, <laughs> slot red 12. <laughs> and, they, and they send me to, like, you know, the Ukraine. And, and I go, now, where's the office I'm going to for the meeting? He goes, right over there. Right next to me. <laughs> so I go, I park the car, trot all the way down, do an audition for the show Knots Landing. I get done, and I leave the thing, and no cell phones then. This is 1983. And so I pull up to a phone booth. I call my agent. It's late in the afternoon. They're still in the office. He goes, how did it go? I go, how did it go? I think it went pretty well. Pretty well? You moron! They want to hire you. <laughs> and I go, you're kidding me. He goes, he goes, yeah, of course. He goes, we're making a deal right now. We're closing the deal right now. You're going to get 25 for the pilot. And 12-5 an episode. And I swear to God, coming from my background, I went, golly, y'all going to pay me $2,500 for the pilot and $1,250 per episode every week? And he's like, no, you moron. They're going to pay you $25,000 for the pilot and $12,500 an episode. And I literally urinated in my trousers. <laughs> I'm standing at a phone booth on the corner of like, you know, Walker and Washington in Culver City. And the guy tells me this. And that's when my life changed. Yeah. 
for, for me, it was always you were competing against yourself. We didn't go out and do a lot of reading. You know, some, sometimes I, I remember there was a uh, – the Jackson 5 had a summer show. So they would say, we need comics. And so they'd call the comedy store and, you know, if, if Mitzi liked you, you'd get to go be on the Jackson 5 show. There was plenty of work and it wasn't, I think, as in acting as you describe, guys elbowing each other out and, and higher-ups wanting to step on their hands and hurt their feelings. But when, you, when you've done the show back from the NBC days and now through the many years at CBS – it's a very hermetic situation for you and nobody bothers you and there's never questions about your budget and there's never questions about nobody calls you. You don't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Or do you have to fight with the network about things like other shows do? Well, it's ne- never a fight. It's right. a, a negotiation, but we don't have the fight. You know, if, if right. we want to do something, we can pretty much do right. it. And again, what we want to do now is far different level and scope than we wanted to do when we were. Because when we, we came into this show, we just thought, oh, America is, has been waiting for us. We're going to change the face of television for America. And boy, it didn't happen that way, you know. It just didn't happen that way at all. We did a, a sketch on the old late night show, and it was with one of the writers, Tom Gamble, and it was Dale, the psychotic page. We had to set up nine holes of a miniature golf course. He would come in with an NBC page blazer, and he would play miniature golf. And with each a failing attempt on the whole, he would become more and more psychotic. There's your comedy, yeah, America. Yeah. It's, it's, this it's, is what you've been waiting for. Yeah. Aren't yeah. you glad they we're here? <laughs> yeah. I, I love on your show. I haven't done this in a while. I miss it because everything, I, I guess they can't do this stuff all the time. And maybe this bit is a victim of global warming. But I get there one time and they want me to ride the snowmobile on the roof of the building years ago. Yeah, yeah. They're all very droll, you know. Mm-hmm. And Biff always calls me Alex. I love that. <laughs> You're on the roof and it's snowing. And we're on the roof of your building and it's snowing. And Biff's like, okay, now Alex. Alex, you're going to ride the snowmobile around the roof a few times. There's going to be men on every corner to catch you to keep you from going over the side. Is that all right? I'm like, great. Let me go. Danger. You know, I love it. The elements. What's a good show for you now? Uh, well, What defines a good show for well, you? Well, like, now? you know, the, I think the last time you were on, I, I say this, of course, to, you know, suck up. Good idea. It was a, uh, a very pleasant, easy Give and take and exchange. I love it when a good, smart, funny guy just comes right back at me. You know, in, in the beginning when we oh, he's so mean. Why is he mean to everybody? And I never thought I was being mean. I just thought I was, you know, goofing around. Yeah. yeah. So when you were coming on and you were going after me, ah, that was delightful. I loved that. But those segment producers who you work with, I mean, it took me a while to be able to, I mean, I would do the show with you a number of times. And the segment producers, would they would say that to you. They'd say to you, no, no, give it back to him. Yeah, yeah he yeah, loves that. Give yeah. it back to him. So many people, I think, uh, that runs against their nature, other people are ill-equipped to do that. You live a pretty under-the-radar lifestyle. Do you do that by choice? You well, live a very quiet, private yeah. life. Uh, first of all, I don't get invited many places. Secondly, I just would, you know, you do the show and—, and all of that comes to you during the day. You exactly. know, you, you have the same people at the gala, the same people at right. the opening, the same people at Benefit will be the show there. with that expression of all that for you. So I don't feel the need to go seek that. And secondly, like so many people, I'm uncomfortable with large groups of strangers. I mean, I think people are. And, and what is your downtime like now? What do you like to do? Uh, well, sleep is a, is a precious commodity. Uh, there's virtually no sleep between my eight-year-old uh, son and, and uh, my two-year-old dog and my wife. My wife, honest to God, has not slept eight hours in eight years. Right. I mean, she, she'll go to bed at midnight and get up at six. So that's six hours. Yeah. You can do that once or twice. Yeah. You know, like when you're 18 and you're in the Marines. You can I'm do dying that. from insomnia. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Have, I have uh, terminal insomnia. That's it. 
So when you're not fighting insomnia, what is it? Do you like to travel? Oh, travel. You do things when you have an eight-year-old. As you know, when you have a child, you do things you never thought you would do, and it's fun. We went to Alaska a few weeks ago because uh, it was my birthday, and I was talking to my son, and and I said, well, you know, we're we're thinking uh, about uh, maybe going up to uh, Alaska. This guy tells me there's a place to ski up there. He says, oh, let's go to Alaska. And so I said, well, you know, we're still thinking about it and still thinking about it. And then I hear from Regina that now Harry's gone to school and told everybody that, hey, Daddy, and me and Mom are going to Alaska. And I thought, holy crap. Yeah. See, that's how we get you. We're going to Alaska. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff is kid-driven, and, you know, I'm all for it. No tennis, no golf. No, no tennis, no golf. Um, no movies. Uh, I see plenty of movies. See all the movies. Oh, no, not at home so much. It's all, it's all with the kid. Do you find that your son, because this is very common, he pulls you into the world, into mm-hmm. his world, right. and you have to show up at things right. and show up at places, right. and everybody treats you very Respectfully, yep. and they, yep. don't, they don't bother yeah, you. People, You're there as a dad. Yeah. The last time anything untoward happened was a, a Christmas party. Uh, my wife has uh, is friends with a very famous couple, and I have great admiration for the couple. More people should be like these people. And and, and as a result, I'm afraid to be around them because I'm duck lips. They and, make you look bad. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I make myself look bad. <laughs> went to a Christmas party, and it was uh, so packed that you couldn't move. It was all vertical. N- nothing happened horizontally. And as people kind of from their positions about the uh, apartment spotted me, it was it was as though there was uh, methane gas leaking in the apartment. It was, oh, no. And it's the holidays, and why is he here? No. Yeah. No, come on. True story. People love you. <laughs> people don't love you. People me. love you. People love you. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. People, people. But the thing is, is that you, you get a lot of that quotient on the job. And then when the job's over, you want to go home, be with your yeah, family. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and especially now with, with the eight-year-old because, uh, uh, you know, and I feel stupid talking about it because I'm like the 40th billionth person to have a child. Sure. So I have, I have, no, I have no insights. He might claim he has no insights, but if David Letterman ever writes a book on parenting, it's guaranteed to be a bestseller. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, real conversations with artists, writers, policymakers, and performers. It's where I find out why people do what they do. It has been such a great, rewarding, and satisfying experience. I always say that anything Alec Baldwin asks me to do, I do. You come through. You can listen to other episodes at here's the thing.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian Cocktail Maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. We're here for Mr. Douglas. Michael Douglas has lived on Central Park West for decades. Thank you, sir. The son of Kirk Douglas, he's American acting royalty. But he's earned his own place at the round table with powerful performances throughout his career. Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, Dan Gallagher in Fatal Attraction, then there's Romancing the Stone, Basic Instinct, The Game, Traffic, and Wonder Boys. He has two Academy Awards, one as an actor, another as a producer, and he's worked with everyone from Oliver Stone to Curtis Hanson. Hello. In 1987, he worked with the British director Adrian Lyne on Fatal Attraction. He was great, and he has a great knack and talent for that. And I remember, you know, when Glenn and I, when we were doing Fatal Attraction, and we had the scene in the kitchen, well, the first time we were kind of going at it, we got her up on the kitchen sink. And so we did a, a take on that, and, and he said, well, that was, that was wonderful. Love, that was just great. What could we do? I think, uh, and Glenn said, well, maybe I can take the water and I can stick my wet fingers in his mouth. Lovely, 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 lovely. How of, many of your fingers can you grab <laughs> into his mouth? Can you get all of your fingers into his mouth, darling? <laughs> exactly. I'd love to see so that. He, he was great. He was great. I love his uh, films. And a lot of fun. Every day, he said, well, do you want me? I said, I should get and shape this picture. No, 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 you're a New York lawyer. This should yes. look good just the way you are. Yes. And in about three weeks, Jesus, Michael, Michael, you look like Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that favor. They love to shoot that down angle, you know, and we all look better with the camera yeah. above our sure, eye line. Sure. And the older I they, get, raise that camera. Yeah, yeah. Don't you drop they that camera, all, you. Yeah. yeah. When you work now, what's it been like for you now in terms of uh, you show up and you're pretty facile at getting there emotionally in terms of how you want to play it. And is it more technical for you? Yeah. Someone early on in my career told me, you know, the camera can always tell when you're lying. Ooh, I was like, the camera can tell when I'm lying. Well, I used to method it up. I got to be truthful. One day I said, wait a minute. I lie every day. I said, but you know, the camera I can tell if you're lying, not <laughs> yeah, me. Not me. Exactly. I'm different. I'm talented. <laughs> right. Exactly. What's acting about except lying? That freed me up a whole lot when I realized uh, that. But the last ten years, 
the biz has changed uh, dramatically. The technical part is is definitely... Um, yeah, to me now, it's all, you know, where's my light? Where's the camera? Raise that camera. I used to say, well, we got to have a clean take. And I got to burn one great connected master. Yeah. Now I'm like, we're going to do four pickups of this line. And it's so technical to me now, it's unbelievable. I learned that a lot from actually from Jack Nicholson on, on Cuckoo's Nest. I was watching, you know, the it, it's editing. You do sometimes take after take, and then you go sometimes look at the dailies and you see how minute the differences are. And then they can judiciously edit. I mean, I was working with some people early on because I didn't know better. And I was looking at people and I'd say, my God, when they watch the dailies of this, they're going to really be unhappy because this person's as boring as you could possibly imagine. They're not doing anything. And that was my sin was I felt like I always had to be acting. And I guess my question is, sometimes you go to work and you, gotta, you know what you want to do. What do you do when you go to a movie and the director has nothing to offer you? He's really just a traffic cop pointing a camera. My feeling is with movies, I mean, first of all, they get a good part. And the gecko is a great part, you know? And sometimes you get a good part. And, and a, lot of, a lot of pictures I've done where I'm in every single scene and I'm carrying the plot line and somebody else has got the colorful good part. But I, I always think that if, you, if the picture's cast properly or if you're cast right, I never expect to hear much from a director. You don't? No. The world is so different now. I've got people walking up to me all the time quoting some of the most corrosive lines from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. They think it's good to talk about the kind of thuggishness of the sales industry when I say, you know, coffee is for closers and you say greed is good. Do you think in our lifetime that that line has changed, greed is good, where people really believe that's true? Well, the affirmation that I got from that villain from that from, community. From that, from, from that community. You know, if I get one more drunken guy from the street going, hey, man, greed is good. You're the man. You're why I got into this business and everything. I go, hey, you know, That's I, what I'm I was a villain. What is your relationship to going to the movies now? Yeah, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but I'm not a moviegoer. I don't see many movies. Why? Um, I waste so much time watching news and sports. Uh, I love watching sports. But, you know, I can't tell you how it's going to end. My problem with movies, you know, is you get halfway through a movie and da, 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 da. you see, I was right. I love making movies, but I'm really bad, Alex, when it comes to um, seeing them. When you were younger, did you always sense you were headed in this direction in some way? No, I never, I never thought I was good. I mean, probably a lot of it was resentment as a young kid, my folks getting divorced and both of them being actors, but I never even thought about doing this at all. And I said, I was a, like a junior in college. They took me into the vice chancellor's office and you're in your third year of college and you're not in a major. And I went, all right, so I guess, you know, drama should be easy. You know, I got both parents. I hung around, my mother was in, did a lot of theater and so I was hung around there, but it was not something I dreamed about. But the success you have now came in stages. When you were younger, and you did your early films, you were the gentle young man. Right. But I wonder in your case, because you eventually played a very tough, very powerful actor on film. So do you think when you were younger, you pulled your punches because you didn't want to step on what you thought was your dad's territory? You didn't want to well, be comp compared to him? First of all, you look at his career. He played the sensitive young man for his first six or seven pictures what? until he did a movie called The Champion. I just think... 
I was just trying to define who I am because the one problem about being second generation is, you know, half of me is made up of my father's genes. My mother, Diane, is an actress too, but not as well known. So when you see behavioral or mannerisms that are like your father, I feel like it takes away from your individuality, right? And it's sort of like, oh, earlier on, I just was trying to find out who I was and being a nice guy was a way of pleasing everybody. But the truth be told, a villain's the best way to go. Yeah. Playing a bad guy. Yeah. It's a better uh, line, that's for Better sure. lines, it's more colorful. Audiences vicariously love you because a lot of times everything that they want to do in real life, but they can't do what you can do in the movies. Contrarily, women, it's taken them so much longer to be comfortable in playing the villains. I mean, I look back to us producing Cuckoo's Nest and all the actresses that turned down the part of Nurse Ratched right. because they didn't want to play a villain. Louise Fletcher, Louise Fletcher. Let's gets she an Oscar. It. Yeah, you know, for playing it well. I, when I went to Strasbourg, the acting school, we did a gender-reversed production of Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, really? And the girl was McMurphy. Oh. And all the inmates were females, and I was Nurse Ratched as a man. Ah, that's a great idea. <laughs> Is your relationship with your dad more father-son now, or is it more two great colleagues in motion picture history? No, it's more father-son. It is. It's more father. I mean, he's 94 years old. I'm, I'm just so proud of him. And, you know, he wasn't a great dad mm-hmm. as, in the prime as an actor. He was, like a lot of us were, consumed with his career. For him, it really started when he had his helicopter accident sure. he was 70 with a friend's helicopter and they hit a uh, aerobatic plane and the when they were taking off and the people in the aerobatic plane crashed and died instantly and he just was black and blue started him on this you know why am i alive and this 18 year old student pilot and the instructor dead so he started getting back into his religion reading the talmud reading the old testament working with a rabbi and has become a much more spiritual person. I am in so awe of him in the third act of his life, what he's accomplished between 70 and 94, which is about nine books, called him last week. The housekeeper said he's down at the office. What the hell are you doing down at the office? You know, he says, well, I'm just finishing the edit of my last book. You got another book, Dad? Says, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what else? He says, well, I got a book on sculptures. He says, wow, that's, 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 that's good, Dad. That's really good. I look at him much more um, as a father now because I'm, you know, much less competitive with him. What did he do to you or not do for you, the positive or the negative, that you've passed on to your children? The negative is you got to watch your quick temper. You think you had a temper like your dad? No. No, I didn't have yeah. one quite. Few people. <laughs> few people. Few people did. Few people. I mean, there, there, was, yeah. there was a reason why you saw that. Yeah, right. I think I realize now, because he's a white Russian Jew, you know, uh, Belarus and all of that. And, and he was pissed off at his dad. He, well, that and also he saw how much anti-Semitism there was in the world. Because people would talk to him because they didn't know he was a Jew. 
How much? Mr. Douglas, please come sit down. Yeah, nice right. to be in the club. Were there none of those people yeah, about? Exactly. He would see that. Exactly. Well, exactly. Because he changed his name. He's not no longer Danielovich. Well, I you think, didn't have as bad a temper as him. No, not not as bad. I mean, I've I've learned to to monitor it. Or Me be, too. Be aware of it. You you have a short handle. I, I used to. I'm yeah. a lot better now. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I don't care as much. That right. was the trick. There's things that you can't control. Is that God grant me the serenity sure. to accept the things I cannot change and the courage yeah. to change the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. Right and it's on. true. Mine was even worse. It was even more narcissistic. I was just angry because nobody else cared about it, whatever it was, what? as much as I did. I wonder, what was your relationship like with your mom in terms of your career? What would she, you and she talk about? Well, my mother's English background. She was not so much in the business. She's, she's very bright and was probably more politely critical of me as an actor. It was not bad, not bad. Not bad. What did you get from your mother? Um, what did your mother is in you? Diplomacy. Um, the guy that could produce films? I think Jack Lemmon said it when we were doing China Syndrome. He said, Michael, he said, he hits you with a thousand powder puffs, you know? It takes that to produce. Yeah. To be able to massage people and work with them and get yeah, rather, top people rather than together. confrontational in that way. And I think she has that. I think my father has made it more difficult for himself in his confrontational and his anger, you know, in his career. The positive side of Kirk is a sense of tenacity and stamina. My son is a cross country runner now. Your son's my ten year old son, ten-year-old. Dylan. Yeah. Dylan. Dylan, right. right. You doing this now with ten years old? Yeah. He's a yeah. He's already starting track about his, Yeah, about his, about his track stuff. And your older son has had his problems. What's been your relationship with your son's alcoholism and drug addiction? Um, I think there's a certain genetic part. And I think as far as drug addiction, you know, your peer group plays a huge part of that. I'm of the belief that, you know, at 13, 14 years old, as a parent, you've lost a lot of your influence. Uh, They're by taking your, their signals from other people. From other people and by their peer group. That triggers and starts it off. And then, in my oldest son's case, there was no end until he was incarcerated. Um, I think secrets play a part in this, in the fact that whether it's a bad marital relationship that you're trying to keep from your children and the tension is there, and you're not really kind of up front. I mean, this go-around, I'm finding myself much more honest with my seven-year-old daughter than I ever thought I would be. Also, just because of what they have access to. I mean, just watching Glee, uh, which is our family night. You know, I don't know why I'm so surprised, but I am. I'm looking at it, and, and they're watching, you know, right or wrong without, without any kind of... Ratings on it, you know, two boys kissing each other and uh, all that, besides the gay actually physically seeing things. It's a free-for-all. A free-for-all. So I, I think in that way, not keeping as many secrets. Isn't it funny how people, men in particular, who have, and I don't want to put this delicately, who have played near the third rail sexually speaking. Right are very sensitive about that when right. their children are growing up. They're like, no, no, don't oh, need to yeah. watch that. Yeah. I mean, your yeah. dad has that great line. My son was sent to rehab for sex addiction. He thought, <laughs> wow, I didn't realize that was a problem. problem. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How much did you inherit that? Which is, this is what men are supposed to do. Um, probably Before your current marriage. <laughs> 
Probably, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm watching, I mean, my father's been very fortunate, his second wife, um, Anne, who's uh, French and they've been married 56 years, I think, and has a different, had a different attitude earlier on. He was a rascal. So you've been sick. What was your relationship to cancer before you had cancer? How was it in your life, family, friends? Never really, uh, nothing. My, my, my father, remember, had a little skin thing. My mother had, again, a slight skin issue, but no real history. Wasn't an event in your life when you no, were there? No, no. And then what did you find out? How did well, yours play I, out? I actually was right after I finished the Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. My throat was a little sore, and I thought maybe it was from, you know, like from tension from the part where you haven't placed your voice, where you're swallowing your words and you're, you're speaking from the back of your throat. So I saw doctors, thought it was some sort of sore and I had antibiotics, this and that. And then, you know, I, said, I lived with it and went on for another couple of months. Your, your general practitioner then sends you to experts. I go to an ear, nose and throat guy and a periodontist and this and that. And another round of antibiotics. And then I went away for the summer and I was in Canada, and I called and said, listen, something's going on here. How, long, went, how much time has passed since you first found that? Now we're in August, and I first went to him in January. It was almost more than half a year. Yeah, half a year. Finding an ear, nose, and throat doctor at a Jewish hospital in Montreal, Quebec, and he literally opened my mouth, and he took a tongue depressor, and I'll never forget that moment when he looked up at me and looked back down. I knew... And he said, well, I guess we're going to have to take a biopsy. A biopsy of, he said, well, there's a, a polyp here. Roof and of your mouth, gum line? On my, and it was on my tongue. Two days later, he called me back in and said, uh, you got cancer for, for head and neck uh, cancer. Uh, the best place was Sloan Kettering. And I went down and, and within a week and found out that it was stage four which is the maximum. So seven weeks of radiation and chemo. The reality is with all the doctors that I could have here in New York, if I had been checked back in January for head and neck cancer, this could have all happened a lot early. And the thing with cancer is you want to get it as early as you can. Because I, I want to mention that I came to this door, to your home here in New York, fully expecting you to look, I'm going to be very honest with you, not as great as you look now. You look pretty damn good. I really... I went to Costa Rica for a week, Alec. Right I got now, to go to Costa Rica. You're you working. You look your normal self. You look fantastic. Well, thank you. I lost a little bit of weight to help out, but you, you got a job. I don't. I got a job. The one, the one advantage of this is uh, you know, I'm deciding I'm taking the rest of this year easy. Enjoy my family and uh, just take her easy. Now, you had kids, so you had your son when you were how old? 56. God, I love that. Should I have more kids? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. At I that mean, very moment, I mean, the doorbell rang. I think, uh, I think, here's my daughter. Wait a Please minute. This is, this is, Wait a minute. This is Karis. Hello. Karis, welcome to Hello, Hello to Alec. Karis was coming home from school, and she jumped into the chair next to her dad. Has she seen a couple of your films at least? I have hardly any movies that she can see. Jewel and I. And um, the other one, the stone thing. Romancing the stone. 
Those are like my favorite movies of all time. Oh, really? <laughs> I love when you. When I first, <laughs> when I first saw it, I was just like... Well, because a long time, she didn't really know what I did. You know, she knew Mommy because of Chicago and all that. Sure. Mommy was an actress. The I longest know. time, he didn't know. I once said to my, my friend, said, what does your dad do for a living? And I said, he makes pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, I want to go to your house. I love pancakes. Michael Douglas has temporarily turned in his spatula to play the lead role in Behind the Candelabra, a biopic on Liberace for HBO out in 2013. Liberace was a lovely guy. I mean, the truth, I haven't played a lot of nice guys. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with support from Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, and Monica Hopkins. Thanks to Trey Kay, Lou Olkowski, and Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.